You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. All the shocking realism, all the magnificence and depravity. In Africa, my people born free. That's right. Free men, not slaves. You need a white lady to give you sound with human blood. I wouldn't know what to do. Not with no white lady. You keep on your shirt and drawers. Plague's a white lady most of the day to see a man naked. Don't kiss me yet. Unless it's just a cousin kiss. All the passion of the explosive novel that sold over nine and a half million copies has now been brought to the screen. motion picture epic of the Old South. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Paul Talbot. Hello, Mike. Thanks for having me back on the Projection Booth. Also with us this week is Mr. Greg Klimkew. Always pleased to be on the Projection Booth. This week, we are heading to Falconhurst and looking at the unlikely hit Mandingo, the film series that informed it and its sequel and the knockoffs in its wake. It's the story of a slave breeding plantation and the sordid goings on there. 
From that intro, you should tell that we're going to be talking about a lot of different films and ruining the endings for some of them. So if you've not seen Mandingo, Drum, Buy Uncle Tom, or any of the other Mandingo exploitation films and don't want anything ruined, turn off the podcast now and come back later. We will still be here. Now, Greg, what was the first time you saw Mandingo and what did you think? As a kid, I remember the bookshelves of a local bookstore in um, sort of a North Winnipeg mall. It was filled to the brim with all the Mandingo Falconhurst sagas by Onstott and Horner. And, you know, like most healthy young lads, I ended up devouring them, you know, like a greedy baby hippo amongst a patch of delectable bulrushes. And um, I love the books. I absolutely love them. So that when I was looking at my newspaper listings and noticed that the crowning glory of, you know, the Mandingo books was a movie in my 16th year on this earth, I lined up at my favorite downtown Winnipeg Picture Palace, which is the, uh, it was called the Metropolitan Cinema. There was this long lineup snaking around the block of the theater, which it was like a 2000 seat picture palace, right? And this was a Friday noon hour showing of the film. And it's amazing. Like the, the cinema filled was filled the orchestra seats part of the balcony um this was in the afternoon and, and it was packed. i i mean i love the film so much and this was in the days when you could just like sit through movies again and again i actually like a you know little 16 year old psychopath i threw it four times that day and i saw it many more times during its initial run and subsequent releases and you know, various repertory showings throughout the 70s and 80s, and even ran the film a few times in my, you know, my own repertory cinema. So it was a film that really blew me away as a young man, and it never ceases to blow me away. I think it's a great picture. Now, Paul, you actually wrote the book on Mandingo, but you didn't have like the intro where you said, the first time I saw Mandingo, blah, blah, blah. So when was the first time you saw Mandingo, and what was your impression? I was uh, familiar with it. Um, I grew up in the 1970s when I was in elementary school. I used to go to the drugstore and look at all the different books. So I was first aware of what Mandingo was when I would see the books of all those slavery novels. So I would always see Mandingo, the novel. And then... When the movie came out, I would always, always look in the newspaper to see what kind of movies are playing. I was too young to see them, but I saw the uh, poster or the newspaper ad for Mandingo, that famous lurid poster with the interracial couples. And so I always knew what Mandingo was, but of course, I was way too young, young to see it. It was around uh, the early 80s. I think it was probably around 1982. HBO, the paid television station, showed a lot of movies a lot of older movies uncut, and Mandingo was one of them. So when I was in high school, I saw Mandingo uncut on HBO for the first time, and it totally blew me away. It was amazing. I uh, went to school the next day, and then, of course, all the kids would always be talking about what they watched on HBO the night before. And so that following day, everybody, black and white, was talking about Mandingo. I was at the right age, 15, 16, there about when I first saw it, which is the perfect age to be seeing a movie like that. Mandingo is one of those movies and one of those terms. I mean, I think we've all heard the term Mandingo even separate from 
the movie now. I think that some people might be even surprised in 2017, 2018, that there is a movie called Bendingo because it has kind of taken on legs as far as it's just being a term for a well-endowed black man, usually going with a white woman. It has such a, a rich history. I mean, of course, there were the Mandingo people that lend everything its name, but you guys are both talking about these books, and there were so many books that came before the film and even after the film, right? The, the books didn't stop happening until after the movies came out. You know, there's a lot of paperback collectors now, people who collect paperbacks from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. But these uh, slavery books are kind of forgotten now, which is kind of surprising because back in the day, they sold millions and millions of copies. They were inescapable. But now they're almost like totally forgotten. I mean, of course, they do have a cult following, but not the same kind of cult following that a lot of the other paperbacks, you know, mostly the men's adventure paperbacks from the 60s and 70s. We don't seem to have a cult following or a huge cult following for the, the slavery type novels that were popular back then. As a kid, I remember I knew you weren't supposed to judge a book by its cover, but what covers, the lurid covers featuring these bewitchingly bosomy, dusky beauties, you know, brutish slave traders brandishing whips. I mean, how could I not want to read these books? Exactly. And it's not, yeah, and it's not in a uh, touch on what, um, Greg said it wasn't just the books themselves, but also the covers. Even if you didn't read these novels, you were certainly aware of them because you go to the drugstore and there'd be all the new paperbacks and there would always be those slavery paperbacks, you know, with either a attractive half naked black woman or an attractive half naked white woman mixed with either a black man or a, a white guy in the slavery days. You know, the covers themselves played on the uh, not only the sex, but also the violence, you know, played up the the whipping that took place, the S&M type stuff that went on in the book. Even as a kid, I remember thinking, you know, the research done by the authors had to either be insanely meticulous in reflecting, you know, the the horrendous, almost surreal cruelty of the slave trade, or these authors just had the most depraved imaginations in 20th century literature. Yeah, an incredible amount of research was done on the original Mandingo, and the story behind the original Mandingo is almost as fascinating as the book itself. Mandingo was written by a man named Kyle Onstott, and he didn't actually write the book or actually publish the book until he was 70. He worked on it for several years, but he was in his late 60s when he started writing it. And he was a very interesting guy. He was a white guy. I never lived in the South, but he was fascinated with stories of slavery. And he was known for, he was a world famous dog breeder. He would judge dog shows and he wrote some books on dog breeding that are still published today. It is still like the, uh, the standards in books about dog breeding. And it wasn't until his late sixties that he started writing Mandingo. And he wrote it based on a lot of stories he had heard about slavery and based on a lot of research that he had done himself. So the Mandingo novel is an extremely well-researched book. And that's one thing that's kind of forgotten, too. Uh, the books are forgotten, but it's also forgotten that Kyle Onstock was sort of like, in some ways, a pioneer in terms of documenting and researching all of this uh, information regarding slavery, American slavery. And there ended up being, what, like 15 of these books? 
you said they went on for years, and that's right. The first Mandingo came out in 1957, and the last Falconhurst book came out in 1988. So we're talking a uh, yeah tremendous amount of time. The 50 official Falconhurst books. The thing that got me too was reading about these books, and I. I picked up uh Beningo and I can't remember how many pages my paperback has but the whole history of how many edits the book went through throughout the years and throughout the different markets was fascinating as well the book is huge and again Kyle Onstott when he wrote it every day he would put a Ouija board on his lap and then he would use white paper unlined white paper and pencil and he would just write and write all day long. And then at the end of the day, his son would come home. Uh, he lived with his adopted son. And the son would take the papers and try to make sense out of them, try to put them together. So ultimately, Kyle Onstaw ended up with this massive, massive manuscript, handwritten paper that he sent to uh, a publisher. His publisher was the guy who published all of his dog breeding books. They had never published a fiction book before. But the guy uh, got this massive box of all this white paper, unlined, written in paper of Mandingo, the, the manuscript, and the publisher started reading it one night and finished it the next morning. He was so entranced by it and decided to take a decided, decided to take a chance on publishing it. The hardcover of Mandingo, the first one, is 659 pages. It's a massive hardcover. And then when they put the paper back out, um, of course that would be too thick for a paperback. You know, they wouldn't be able to bind it. So they cut it down to make it more accessible. So the paperback version of Mandingo is much shorter than the hardcover. And then when it was published as a paperback in Britain, they cut it down even further. So there are different lengths, different versions of the Mandingo novel. Kyle Onstant's original manuscript, you know, he would just write it. He didn't really have everything completely plotted out. So he ended up with this massive manuscript. And then when it was first published as a hardcover, there didn't seem to be any editing done. They really just took what he wrote and went ahead and published it. So the hard, the first uh, edition of Bandingo does have a lot of rambling stuff. There's like all kinds of stuff that really goes nowhere. In fact, if you look at the movie of Mandingo, they really only use the last 200 pages of the novel because that's really only where the story starts. But much of Mandingo, the novel, the first edition at least, is really just like a lot of traveling, a lot of stuff that really goes nowhere. They introduce these characters who seem to be interesting, and then they disappear within a few pages. So when they did cut it down, it's very much like you said with Moby Dick. Each time it was cut down, it wasn't cut down for censorship reasons. You know, they kept all the quote-unquote good parts. It was really just to weed it down. In fact, the first edition of Mandingo, if you want to say that you've read the whole thing, you know, you almost like finish it and feel like you've accomplished something. But it's quite plotting and quite very strange novel, the way it's structured. Well, it really doesn't have a structure to it. In my opinion, the best version, if somebody wants to stop by reading it, is to find the British paperback version. Because whoever put that one together really did a good job of not just taking out chunks for... Uh, length reasons, but also went through and really did a careful, almost like a line-by-line editing. So it's one of those books where it was actually improved by being chopped down in the subsequent publications. 
these days, people don't necessarily remember how difficult it was to find paperbacks and especially book series. You know, now you've got Bookfinder, A Books, you've got Amazon, all these different resources where you can say, okay, I want to find all the books by this particular author or all the books in this series. And it's just easy peasy, off you go. Were you concerned about the order and, and reading these things and the, cause the, the order is all kind of out of order as well, as far as like one book will come out and it'll be set in the past and one will be 20 years hence. I mean, did you care about that or did you just gotta go for the covers and, and, and the lurid sexuality of it? I didn't really care at all. I was going for the lurid sexuality and violence. And I, I, uh, Mandingo would have been the first one I read. And then I read all of the others that were available. And, you know, in those days, I mean, the bookstores, all bookstores, you know, first run bookstores, you know, chain bookstores, uh, secondhand bookstores. I mean, they were full of all these books that were part of, you know, parts of series and stuff like that. And I think, you know, even even, for example, all the Edgar Rice Burroughs books, I did remember as a kid reading the very first Tarzan of the Apes. I just ended up reading all the others random. There's a strangeness to the books in that all of these things, maybe not all of them, but at least two of the authors, because we ended up having three authors writing the Falconer's books, and at least two of the authors were gay men. And I'm curious how that kind of colors the narrative, if there is any sort of colorization with that. I'm not sure to what extent the sexuality of the authors would color it, but you know there are clearly there are clearly melodramatic aspects of the story and that that I think that actually once once you know Richard Fleischer got his mitts on the material you know from Norman Wexler's script of the uh, of the book um I I think you know I guess there you know without putting too fine a point on it and I think it's more, it's less a case of the sexuality of the authors or the sexuality of anyone reading the books. I mean, these are stories infused with a lot of over the top melodramatics. And that's what made both the books and, quite frankly, uh, the two films so wonderful and entertaining. Yes, uh, that is an interesting thing. Um, Kyle Onstott, the original author who created, who wrote the original Mandingo and created the Falconer series, he was uh, a closeted gay man, and he also was attracted to brown-skinned men. And of course, again, being closeted, I don't know how he acted out those fantasies, but all of the research, you know, did show that that of course there was a lot of you know, sexual abuse towards slaves, not just white masters sexually abusing their black female slaves, but there was also uh, white slave owners, male slave owners who sexually abused their male slaves. So Onstott, of course, took a lot of that information and put took a lot of that actual information, put it in his book. And I think also because he was he himself was gay and was attracted to uh, dark-skinned man. I think he also used this maybe as a way to put some of his own personal fantasies out there under the guise of saying, hey, it's historical. And the guy who followed up, Lance Horner, who continued the Falconer 
series, he also was gay. He was a little bit more, I don't know how openly gay he was, but he certainly was somewhat openly gay. He owned a an antique store up in New England, and he certainly was involved with a lot of the rich gay community. He had a lot of uh, young uh, male lovers, and he would actually go to uh, Cuba and Haiti on his vacations uh, for the specific purpose of uh, being able to get involved with some very young, you know, adolescent uh, brown skinned boys over there. So he certainly had that predilection. And his novels added, I think, more of the gay subtext than the Onstott original did. So both of those authors were certainly gay, and uh, they put their, their gay viewpoint or their gay fantasies into the books. Now, the final guy who finished it, who uh, continued the series, was Harry Whittington, who was a famous pulp author. And he wrote, when he wrote the books, they were called, uh, he used a different name. He used the name of Ashley Cotter. But Harry Whittington uh, was not gay. He did put all the gay aspects into his Falconer's books, but I, Harry Whittington was more like a, a journeyman writer. He, would, he wrote all kinds of genres, so he would adapt to whatever was needed of him. So the gay stuff he put in was just continuing the gay themes that had already been there, created by Onstott and Lance Horner. So I think his was more like, uh, what's the, I don't know if you want to say maybe his, the gay stuff he put in was, I guess, more canical, more like journeyman type stuff, just following the genre. It's amazing to me that you said that these books carried on until 1988. That just seems like so late in the game. Like I would have thought that this would have stopped around like, I don't know, 76, 78, somewhere around there. But it just feels like, it feels like we should have been. I don't know, more enlightened by 1988 or is it, is it okay that we like these things or is it because these things, they're, they're very, very lascivious. I mean, you, we're talking about, of course, interracial sex, who cares, but gay sex. Yeah. Again, who cares? But then there's tons of incest going on and just craziness. And then all of the abuse and all this kind of stuff, it's just, and it, it's not safe saying consensual. This is, is, you know, hardcore slavery torture all of these horrible things going on and it just feels weird that 1988 these books are still coming out it's amazing like i said it's amazing too because as i said earlier it's almost like the phenomenon has been forgotten because they were huge i mean the original malcolm uh the original mandingo came out in 1957 and in the 1960s all these imitations started coming about and in the 1970s was when it peaked, when the slavery novels peaked in terms of being the most popular. There was all kinds of ripoffs of Mandingos, and they also spawned their own series. So not only was there the Falconhurst series, but there was also all these other series going on in the 1970s. And so by the time we got to the final one, which was Falconhurst Fugitive, was the last entry made in 1988, uh, the interest has certainly dwindled. Dwindled. There weren't that many uh, ripoffs being made, and it's kind of like the diehard fans still kept reading them, and they were all still on the the shelves. But it's kind of like a television series. Whenever a television series lasts for ten years, if you don't watch it, you hear that it's still on. You're like, wait a minute, that's still being going on. So you know, of course, the interest had uh, dwindled. But like you said, it was still amazing they were continuing until 1988. Uh, this you know strange series based on the antebellum slavery system. We're talking about a very extensive grocery list of depravity. 
We're talking incest. We're talking infanticide. We got mega whoring and wenching, and we got, you know, graphic bare buttock floggings with belts, paddles, whips. We've got lynching, you know. Um, there's the no-holds-barred, to-the-death, bare-knuckle fist fighting. There's biting and scratching during those fights. There's, you know, obviously oodles of nudity and sex. And, you know, certainly the films have some, you know, they have some pretty magnificent buttock shots of Ken Norton and uh, a really, truly delightful full-frontal view of Perry King's majestic genitals. And it's phenomenal to me that these books and films exist, but that there's something about the grocery list, as I call it, of depravity. I also think that the films themselves, you know, they came out during a time of, let's be honest with you, unparalleled frankness in cinema. And this is what really made these films special right this is 1975 that mandingo the film comes out and we are peak black exploitation we are peak pornography we are just at the apex of so many phenomena that kind of all come together with mandingo of course i can't see a mandingo film coming out in 2018 or anything but 1975 it's a different world and it just felt like the world, I don't know if they were ready for Mandingo, but it definitely, you know, I, I said up front, it, it was a hit. It was a huge hit. And it was one of those things, like, I know people are, are you know, scratching their heads when they look at something like, I don't know, Batman versus Superman, and they go, wow, the critics hate this thing, but it was a huge hit. And it was kind of the same thing. The critics hated Mandingo, most of them anyway, but it ended up being this phenomenon at the box office, so much so that, of course, it spurred a sequel later on. But this first one was just tremendous. And uh, there's a, a kid up in Winnipeg, I hear, that just sits through uh, showing after showing when it comes out first run. Mandingo, the film, not only was it shocking in 1975, but it's still shocking today. We've got some other classics from the 70s, like The Godfather, The Exorcist. You show them to people today, and of course, they're still uh, classics, but they're no longer really shocking. It's That's been topped. Mandingo has not been topped. When you watch something like that today, show Mandingo to a young film buff, or they're going to be surprised by it because they have not seen it anything like that before you know nobody else had taken that material and topped it made it more shocking than, than that film already is the very first mandingo i have to admit that over the years i've never quite understood how i how critics over the years missed the boat on mendingo i mean i actually think that Fleischer, uh, Richard Fleischer, who directed the film, I mean, I guess sometimes people forget that. I mean, he, he won his one and only Oscar for a documentary. And I think throughout much of his career as a director, he did actually approach his subjects and his films with the eye of a documentarian. And, you know, when you think about, you know, his his work on films like The Narrow Margin or even his really stunning examinations of real-life serial killers in Ten Rillington Place, you know, or The Boston Strangler or even Compulsion. I mean, he always trained his camera on the dramatics by focusing in, I actually think, a very straightforward fashion on the 
mechanics of his subjects. And, and he, he almost editorialized by non-editorializing. Uh, and, and even though Mandingo has melodramatic aspects to the story itself, I actually think it's played very, very straight. This whole notion of this campy, eye-rolling, lip-smacking stuff, I think that's just nonsense. The film is really, really powerful uh, in its depiction of the slave trade. And yes, it uses melodramatic aspects to tell its story, but those aren't necessarily used in a campy way. Because, you know, I, I have this thing. I mean, melodrama for me is a perfectly legitimate form of telling a story. I, I personally think there's only good melodrama and bad melodrama. And I think a lot of people make the assumption that melodrama is bad, right? That it's not good. And that's like such nonsense. I, I, I think I think Mandingo is a masterpiece. I think the critics missed the boat on it. But many, many years later, I think film critics like Dave Kerr and Jim Hoberman, they certainly rallied to the film's defense. And in particular, the original Mandingo certainly does have a wonderful resurgence out there amongst at least the critical contingent. Well, Richard Fleischer, first of all, he's my favorite film director of all time. The first movie I ever saw was Dr. Doolittle. I saw it at a drive-in. My parents took me to uh, the drive-in to see Dr. Doolittle. And he's always been my favorite director. And I think one of the reasons why he's not appreciated is because he was a director who kind of blended into the material. He was a very strong director, but he didn't kind of like call attention to himself with his visual style. I also think because he came from an era where the director wasn't really promoted. He didn't take uh, a credit on most of his films, the early films. It didn't say a Richard Fleischer film or Richard Fleischer's production. He kind of like blended into the background. And yet when you watch all of his movies, his visual style is extraordinary. It doesn't call attention to itself, but all the shots are really well composed. And he was a master of widescreen photography and he was a master of the extended shot. For example, one of the best shots or the best shot in Mandingo is right in the middle of the film when Perry King is getting all his slaves together to go into town. He's going to sell them. And that shot lasts for a little over, it runs, no, that shot actually lasts for about two minutes. And yet everything is, the camera is constantly moving and the actors are constantly moving. It's an extraordinary shot, but it's one of those shots where, uh, not like that big long shot in The Godfather where you know you're watching a, flashy shot this shot in mandingo and many of the richard fleischer movies doesn't call attention to it but it's not a flashy shot but it's an extraordinary extended uh camera shot and when i spoke with richard fleischer when i interviewed him about mandingo for my book he was very happy that somebody wanted to talk to him about it because mandingo was a film that he was very proud of he worked really hard on it on all of his movies, he would do extensive research. So he did extensive research on the period and he hated the novel. He first turned the film down because he hated the novel. And one good thing about the movie is it took that novel and basically uh, stripped it down into a three act screenplay. And so Fleischer was really proud of it, did a lot of research, uh, very proud of how it turned out. And he was just baffled 
by the critical thrashing that the film took. So when I talked to him, he was very happy that somebody wanted to talk to him about Mandingo and was writing a book about it and thought that it was a good film. He was very happy that it was going to hopefully be uh, rediscovered or at least being reappreciated than it was in its initial release. Uh, it was got real bad reviews, of course, in America, got real bad reviews um, over in England. There were some critics in England who did take it seriously at the time of its release. And there were some European critics who also took the film uh, seriously. But of course, in America, yeah, it was it was just uh, destroyed by the critics. And it's known now as one of the worst movies ever made. But again, that's by these people who really haven't seen it. You know, most people have to be told what to watch. They have to read a list of the best movies ever made and they base it on that. And people just perpetuate and say, oh, Mandingo's a bad movie. It's a bad movie. It's a bad movie. And they get that in their head instead of just sitting down and watching it themselves and making their own decision about it. This one was adapted by Norman Wexler, whose name has actually come up on the show before when we did an episode about Saturday Night Fever. And uh, Greg, you mentioned Wexler before. I mean, Wexler was an interesting cat. He only has his name on a few films, but almost all of them are tremendous or they're that kind of helped change a lot of things in the zeitgeist, the movie industry. I mean, Joe was a huge hit for who was that? Uh, New Line or Canon when it first came out. I'm trying to remember which. It was, was Canon, right? The original Canon. Yeah. Right. Big hit for them. Serpico. I mean, Serpico is Serpico is one of those names or words that has a whole cachet to it, like Mandingo. So you can call somebody a Serpico. And if you're over maybe 40, you probably know what they're talking about or mending out to the same. And Saturday Night Fever was a tremendous hit. And then, um, you know, Staying Alive, we'll not talk about that. And then personally, I love Raw Deal, but we won't have to get into Schwarzenegger on this podcast uh, for once. Uh, we normally do, but we'll, we'll just save that for later. But yeah, Wexler, interesting, interesting guy. And yeah, I thought that uh, the screenplay did do a really good job of making this a much tighter story though i do have to say that watching it again yesterday it feels a little back heavy like we're i guess it's one of those things where we know where we're kind of leading up to and that we don't even get introduced to mead who is the titular mandingo uh until a half an hour in is an interesting choice but also that we get introduced to him and then immediately get introduced to blanche the uh suzanne george character right afterwards is an interesting choice to do because until then this is a story of the Maxwell family, who's Warren Maxwell, played by James Mason, and Hammond Maxwell, played by Perry King, and their interactions on the plantation, and that, you know, Hammond is getting ready to take over the plantation from Warren, because Warren is older and feebler, and then it, at that end of the first act, we get introduced to Mead and Blanche, one-two punch, and then the story really kind of starts to take off from there for me. And that's the amazing thing for me about Mandingo as a film and just just in terms of the structure of the script and the way Fleischer handles everything. I love that first act, just taking its time, giving us a sense of what it was like to live on one of these plantations and the way it does focus upon Warren and Hammond Maxwell and their lives there. And the fact that the the plantation itself 
is pretty much a breeding plantation. Um, and the film actually, and again, you know, that, 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 that sense of, you know, Fleischer's sort of documentarian eye, you know, I mean, we really get a sense of how things work in this plantation. And that for me is one of the fascinating things about the actual drama of the film. That just shows again how they took the novel, which was really rambling, and uh, Norman Wexler worked close with Richard Fleischer. They actually holed up in a hotel for a couple weeks to uh, develop the structure of the novel to turn that big novel into a tight screenplay or a three-act screenplay. The first cut of Manding was actually almost four hours long. Of course, like most movies, of course, they couldn't let it run that long, but they actually did have to cut it down. You know, Fleischer told me that he had to uh, bring the picture down and tighten it up. And he did feel that the longer version, not a four hour version, but he did want to cut it down to maybe uh, two hours and 45 minutes because he did feel that kind of like what you guys said, the structure in the final film is kind of strange because it just kind of goes from all the, from one uh, terrifying event to another terrifying event. Whereas the longer version gave a little bit more of a flavor and was a little bit more developed, in other words, especially the final act, which Mike said moves kind of quickly. It had a lot. Yeah, I could imagine that, a, a you know, a two hour and 45 minute version of this film being absolutely perfect, because I think some movies really benefit from having breathing space. And certainly this particular film I'd have been happy sitting there watching it for four hours or five hours, like some kind of, you know, Sergei Bondarchuk war and peace epic or something like that. I, I'd have been perfectly happy to do that. But really, the one thing about the pace of the film, though, is that I find that ultimately I've never found myself wavering when I watch it. And I've seen this film so many times and it just endlessly, endlessly fascinates me. Fleischer actually, shortly before his death, he was actually looking into trying to do a restored version of Mandinko, trying to do like a director's cut. And he actually had some people search in the vaults at Paramount, but unfortunately all that material was destroyed. So uh, unfortunately there is no, you know, we're not able to ever see the director's cut of Mandingo because like most films, the extraneous stuff was destroyed. I really wish there was a restoration insofar as the picture quality, because watching it again yesterday, it's really needs to look better. There are scenes, especially towards the end, when we get the character, Lucretia Borgia, and she is a dark-skinned woman, and she's in shadow, and you just can't see her at all. She's negative space. It's just crazy, because I know that they lit it better than what we're seeing on this. And I watched a, a DVD version, and it looked like VHS quality. It just wasn't nearly the quality that it needs to be, and I wish that there was a, a properly restored Blu-ray of this. I can't believe how awful the film looks on its various home entertainment configurations. And I guess I'm lucky. I'm lucky because I saw how gorgeous this film looked. I saw it many, many times on 35 millimeter in real movie theaters. And the picture does look gorgeous. And I think even when you're watching a not very good VHS, DVD, or even Blu-ray version of the film, I think you can tell how gorgeous the movie should look. 
And it, it really, uh, it really drives me nuts that nobody has actually done a proper restoration of the film, if only for its visuals. Paramount doesn't really do too much in terms of putting stuff out on Blu-ray. They don't really put all the classics out themselves on Blu-ray. They license it, and the companies they license to uh, don't really put any extras on it. And uh, what you're saying is right. Mandingo hasn't been restored since DVD. When it came out on DVD, they did make a new master for it. But it's been on Blu-ray in the United States twice since then, but they've been using the same master. So what you guys are saying is correct. You know, there is does need to be a... Uh, restoration. Now, I said earlier that the uh, deleted scenes were lost, so it was impossible to do to restore Fleisch's director's cut. But the actual negative of the R-rated version, the two-hour version that we all know, that negative still exists. So it is possible to go in and do a 4K or whatever scan of the negative and put out a much higher quality uh, Blu-ray. So hopefully that will happen. I know there's some. Uh, some companies um, out in the United Kingdom have started doing some licensing with Paramount, and I'm hoping that uh, Mandingo is going to be one of the ones that will be out there with the new restoration. And, of course, I hope they let me do the commentary for it to fill in the blanks. Well, then you even pointed out that there's some scenes that we get in, what, like lobby cards and stuff that aren't necessarily – I mean, nowhere near drum. We'll talk about that when we get there, but – the, that there are some shots and things that we see on lobby cards that aren't in the final film. I mean, among the things that were cut for time for Mandingo, there's a scene where during the slavery scene, during the slave uh, auction, uh, a white abolitionist is tied to a post and beaten. That's on a lobby card, but that never existed in any version. And that scene, the film version is lost. Also, Sylvester Stallone had a small role in the auction scene, Perry King uh, had worked with Stallone on the film, uh, the Lords of Flatbush. And he got Stallone a small pot in Mandingo, but Stallone's pot is cut uh, from Mandingo and it's lost. Um, And it was uh, Richard Fleischer's favorite shot in Mandingo was during the slave scene. It started underground where you see these people preparing the slaves, putting grease on them. So they'll glisten. And then the camera went up, to the sunlight to where the auction was. It was a long shot, difficult to do. It was Fleisch's favorite shot in the movie, and that was one of the parts that was cut when the film had to be cut down to a two-hour length. So all of that stuff was lost. Now, in terms of any violence or sex, fortunately, uh, the film got an R rating without having to cut any of that. As Greg said earlier, there's a full frontal shot of Perry King, and Richard Fleischer told me he didn't think they'd get away with that because it's a long shot where you see Perry King completely naked, full frontal, and that wasn't often seen in a major Hollywood film of that era, but they let that scene go in. The only thing that was cut from the version we're watching is one bit of violence in the final fight scene with uh, Mead and the other slave. Mead bites the guy on the neck and kills him by biting him on the neck. There was a shot that had to be cut for an R rating of the, the neck bleeding. So that had to be cut, and that, of course, unfortunately, is lost also. So um, that bit of gore, you know, again, that's something else that would be impossible to restore because, unfortunately, it's lost, and that has not appeared in any other foreign version. A lot of people, you know, you see these lobby cards, and we see these pictures of edited scenes, and we think, well, 
the foreign version was longer, but that's actually not the case. In fact, they did film some alternate stuff. Like I said, you see Perry King naked. They did film that same shot in an alternate version with him with his uh, underpants on. Some of those alternate shots have appeared overseas in overseas versions, but uh, the lesser scenes, meaning instead of him being naked, he's got underpants on. So the foreign version do have some alternate shots, but not with more nudity or more violence, but with less. I was really impressed with Perry King as Hammond Maxwell. I thought he did a really good job in this. Yeah, Perry King is amazing. I mean, one of the things about Perry King, I mean, we we forget what a great actor he was. I, I mean, he was in a lot of terrific pictures during the 70s. And in Mandingo, I mean, you know, playing that attractive, blonde, blue-eyed Hammond, I mean, even when he... When he swaggers into his first scene, he he embodies the epitome of young manhood. And it's interesting, too, because, you know, he is the young master. And one of the things that, you know, um, you know, one of the things about Perry King's performance is that the character at one point, he 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 even. You know, he even has to his his job as the young master of the of of the plantation is to deflower the virgins and and uh, you know it's um you know he 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 does his lines though as do all the actors in this film uh, King infuses his lines with a completely straight face and some of the lines are pretty insane you know i mean he's complaining at one point about having to deflower this young virgin called big pearl because i think he says um, will she be powerful musky you know and i mean it's like appalling right but he does it with such a straight face if we do laugh it's not because it's you know, coming across as campy or something like that, but because it's part of the character and it's being played straight. And and King is just wonderful in the film from beginning to end, even though even how he handles the characters sort of, I would say, almost dangerously, shall we say, liberal attitudes towards the slaves and, and to women in particular. And then how he deals with the conflicts of that within the society of the slave trade in the old South. King is really wonderful in this film, but then so are many of the other actors in it. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily help that the dialogue is written more in true Southern nature, especially more accurate to the time, which we're not used to hearing. And even if you go to, and I'll, be bringing this picture up again later on, but if you, if you go to something like Seven Years a Slave or Birth of a Nation, the one from a few years ago, those are not written in this type of dialect. And when you hear this dialect on screen, it can sound tin-eared to our ears now. If, if we're hearing these words like, you know, what you up for and these kind of things, it's just like, okay, that, that sounds kind of weird. Now you would probably make people sound more almost more British, I suppose, more proper English. But here it's, it almost sounds like, um, like shades of a bonics and kind of a Southern Southernness to the speech. And it does come off as being kind of strange to a, a 2018 audience and maybe even to a 75 audience. I'm not sure, but 
yeah, it's it's an interesting choice that they make, but they stick with it, and everybody is doing their darndest with that. Nobody is doing a, a Kevin Costner, I'm not going to have the accent, whereas everybody else does kind of thing. Oh, it's all played, and it's, again, I keep saying it's all played straight, and this dialogue is astonishing. You know, I mean, at one point when, you know, James Mason as Warren Maxwell, you know, he's complaining about his rheumatism, and and, and Paul Benedict as the slave trader, he recommends that the old patriarch place his bare feet onto the belly of a naked Mexican dog to drain the rheumatiz right out of the soles of his feet and into the belly of the dog. And of course, later on, you know, um, you know, the Maxwell's family doctor elaborates uh, with an equally straight face and says, well, why a naked Mexican dog? A young slave boy would do just as well. You know, hearing this stuff, it's, 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 it's appalling. At one point there's this young little slave boy who is being forced to rest his you know james mason resting his feet upon the belly of this little boy to drain the rheumatism out and and at one point the little boy getting so tired of having to lie there under james mason's no doubt smelly feet it comes walking by and says oh oh massa's misery draining right into me you know this is really creepy and horrifying and you know in many ways i think this film actually in terms of depicting the slave trade and it's a lot of it is because of the dialogue and the way in which the film is actually acted and presented it's really really powerful and horrifying for a little while when they would refer to babies as suckers it was just like it just takes on this whole different meaning. So they're just like, you know, oh, my sucker and this sucker and that sucker. It's just like I had to keep reminding myself, oh, they're they're talking about babies. Yeah, suckers, they're talking about babies. And, of course, having a miscarriage is even referred to as slipping the sucker. The dialect goes back to in Kyle Onstott's original novel, all of the dialogue he wrote in that way. He wrote it in... Uh, I don't know what the correct term is, uh, regionalism or a strong Southern dialect. Everything was written that way in the book. And so the book takes a while to get into because all the dialogue is presented that way. So it takes a while to get into it to be able to understand what you're reading, to understand how these people are talking. And when they wrote the script, a lot of that dialogue was taken directly from the novel. And everybody who did it, that's one thing. Um, all the actors you know, worked on their Southern accents. Perry King, the movie was shot in Louisiana. He got to Louisiana a few weeks early, started hanging out with some of the Louisiana boys to pick up that dialect. Uh, James Mason listened to some phonograph records of a Southern uh, politician. And then Susan George also worked with a dialect coach. So everybody worked hard trying to get that regional flavor in their voice. That's one of the criticisms I don't agree with. A lot of the people, uh, a lot of the critics, when the movie first came out, they criticized the dialect, saying it wasn't accurate. And a lot of people, again, nowadays pick up on that. But when you go into something like that, you just have to enter yourself into the world of that movie and just accept that, that the dialects may not be 100% perfect. But that's uh, a criticism that people have always had, that the accents in the movie aren't authentic or believable. But I totally disagree with that. 
it's that classic British villain syndrome, right? If now, if you want to have someone play a, a Nazi soldier, give them a British accent. I don't understand that whatsoever, but I guess it's that foreignness to their voice. Now we can accept that they are a British soldier, sorry, a German soldier, and I would imagine that they do the same thing with southern movies now they'll give them more of a british accent and now we know that there's a difference to their voice so okay but yeah i i totally agree with you that uh it's an unfair criticism to say that this that it's not accurate it's just it's very different it's very different for our ears now i do have to say that ken norton um, maybe he had a really good accent. I'm not really sure, but it's interesting that Roger Mosley overdubbed all of his lines. As soon as he started to talk, I was like, oh, that's Roger Mosley's voice. That's interesting. Though, I think they make a really good move to not give him very much dialogue at all and to play Mead as being more of a stoic figure. I don't know if he had more dialogue in the book and they just decided to cut down on it, but I think making him more of a silent character and kind of more of an observer of the craziness that's going on around him once he's entered into the story is a smart thing to do. In the novel Mandingo, Mead, the character, is kind of, um, he doesn't have much to say. He's very much a one-dimensional character. He's mostly there just to be an action-type figure. And then, of course, when they were doing the script, um, for a long time, they, of course, were trying to get a black name to play. And, of course, the first person they chose uh, was Muhammad Ali. Of course, of course, that's if you're going to have a if you're looking for somebody to play a black fighter, if it's 1975, that's who you're going to ask first. He, of course, turned it down. Then they went to some other name actors like Harry Belafonte, Sidney Portier. They all turned him down. So somebody recommended take a look at Ken Norton, who was a uh, heavyweight boxer at the time. He had just broken Muhammad Ali's jaw and beaten Muhammad Ali in a fight. So Richard Fleischer auditioned him. Of course, Ken Norton had a fantastic build, very handsome man, but he had never acted before. And Richard Fleischer decided to take a chance on him. And again, the, the character doesn't say much. He's mostly an observer. And they really did improve that character from the book. Because, of course, in the book, again, he's very one-dimensional. They wanted him to be a character that would be more enlightened in the film, and certainly somebody that black audiences at the time could identify with. And, again, because he was not an accomplished actor, they did lay, they did um, dub his voice with, as you said, the actor Roger Mosley, later best, who uh, actually was in the sequel, Drum, playing a different part. And, of course, he was best known for playing on uh, Magnum P.I. And, of course, he didn't... Um, uh, Right, so Ken Norton was not considered to be an accomplished enough actor to do the voice, so Roger Mosley dubbed the voice of Mead in the film. Ken Norton in the film, you know, there is something to be said for the stoicism of that character, especially considering that the character, within the context of the narrative itself, he is essentially being used by the slave traders for his prowess as a fighter and just as he is used by Susan George's character um, to give her a little 
little bit of loving that she's clearly not getting from her uh, hubby, Perry King. And so there's, there is something about that character being so silent and stoic, uh, but I think it, it's something that within the context of narrative itself makes perfect sense. And, and, you know, Norton cuts a pretty wonderful figure in the film. I mean, the camera clearly loves him and, and he's, he's quite perfect in the role. Well, for so much of the movie, there's a love triangle because we have Hammond needing to take a bride and he ends up getting Susan George, who's Blanche. Of course, Blanche means white Blanche Maxwell as his bride. But he has an aversion and I don't think they necessarily spell it out too much in the movie. They just kind of he says, I don't know what I would do with a white woman, but he has an aversion actually in the book to white skin. He actually prefers black girls and he ends up going with ellen as his quote-unquote bed wench ellen played by the gorgeous brenda sykes and so then it becomes this weird like of course i'm thinking of dune with uh you know chani and princess urlan and paul where one gets the title one gets to hold the reins and everything but really our main character of hammond really loves Ellen and does everything that he can to kind of protect her. But then we have this love triangle and then it's eventually Meade is brought in as the last part of this equation, as, as you said, as revenge for Hammond loving Ellen so much. So that's where we get that great uh, lurid poster image of the two interracial couples going at it. And this whole idea of race mixing, which in 1975 was totally you know outside uh what you would see at the box office i mean we're we're a few years north of captain kirk giving uhura a kiss on star trek which was you know scandal of the day but this is definitely not something that we're used to seeing and still will cause controversy today if you put uh, a white woman and a black man or a black woman and a white man on uh you know a goddamn cbs commercial people are going to be calling the station and complaining about it it's like but here we are in 1975, and this is it. And there's no consensualness to the Blanche and Mead relationship, but there definitely is caring and and consensual. Well, as much as a slave can be consensual, and that's a whole other thing. But there's more care going on between Hammond and Ellen, and it's a very interesting uh, dynamic that we have throughout this film. And that's where the the heart of this whole thing lays for me. One of the most amazing things in in Mandingo is 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 just that whole relationship between Perry King and 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 Susan George because you know he you know like you say he says I wouldn't even know what to do with a white woman you know and 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 of course because um, she's already experienced in the ways of sex after having uh, sex with her brother for many years it actually appalls Hammond that his lily white virginal bride likes sex that she loves sex he doesn't understand that it like drives him crazy and and he's he's appalled that that she may have been not only deflowered that 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 she actually enjoys having sex and it's it's like it's such a perverse and twisted 
notion, but also, too, one of the things I'm always fondly reminded of with Mandingo is is at one point when Perry King is having to take Blanche as his wife, he's worried that he won't be able to have wenches. And, and of course, Perry King, he gets the explanation from his father, played by James Mason, that you need a white lady to give your son with human blood. Not them suckers of yours for winches. I wouldn't know what to do. Not with no white lady. And you can't have no more winches if you're married. Of course, have them just the same. You doesn't talk about them in front of your wife, but she knows you have them. She wants you should have them. Saves her from having to submit. When she do submit, though, you keep on your shirt and drawers. Plagues a white lady most of death to see a man naked. To me, that is just so astonishing that this is part of this film, but it's also really appalling, and it feels so true to the period and the characters. Yeah, and one thing that's interesting, the most famous, the movie's best known for the love scene between the white Blanche and the black Mead, and yet that scene isn't even included in the novel. Of course, the action is in the novel, but it's, it takes place off the page. You don't read about it. And in the play, it took place off the page. And even in the screenplay, that all took place off the page. And it wasn't until early in production that Richard Fleisch decided to go ahead and show that scene because he figured that's what people wanted to see. And for at the time, it would have been shocking. And of course, he wanted to present it again as an action, you know, instead of something seedy, it's presented as a really erotic, sensitive, beautiful love scene, that scene between Blanche and Mead. It's so troublesome, though, that we know at the end of the day that there is no real consent between this woman and this man, just as there's no real consent between uh, Hammond and Ellen, because there's the slavery aspect to it. It really makes this movie troubling, but at the same time, it makes this movie such a good place for dialogue. And to go back to what you were saying earlier, as far as critical reception and people just kind of poo-pooing this movie, there are so many things that we can talk about from this movie, so many things that are still relevant today. But no, people wanted to put it on the shelf, you know, give it a, a little turkey, uh, you know, the Medved brothers probably gave it a golden raspberry or any of that kind of horse shit. And we just wanted to like put it out of our minds but it's still in 2018 it's still such a relevant film and it still has such strong performances i wanted to call out you you mentioned uh, paul benedict earlier but i wanted to also call out lillian Heyman does a fantastic job as lucretia borgia who's the quote-unquote mammy of the plantation but i really love richard ward as agma menmon who if people don't no Richard Ward. He has this amazing voice. And for me, I grew up with him as being uh, Navin Johnson's father from The Jerk. Now that you're going out into the world, there's uh, something you should know. You see that? Yeah. That's shit. And this is Shinola. Shit. Shinola. And son, don't never, ever trust Whitey. And then is it G2 Kamboka as uh, Cicero? He gives one of the best performances in this movie, and I just love that character to pieces. Right, yeah, that, those are another example of uh, characters that were embellished for the novel. Agamemnon 
in the novel. He's in all of the Falcon Earth books, every single one of them. And he's just in the novel. He's just a really uh, slovenly, lazy, cowardly person. Where, of course, in the film, they made him enlightened and uh, rebellious. Same with Cicero. You know, they when they made the film, they wanted to make strong black characters, and those are two examples. Yeah, and Cicero giving his whole "kiss my black ass" speech. Oh, that was fantastic. Because, like you, just prove what the Pecker would say. We're just bees, willing to do anything, kill each other. No mind, no feeling. Shut up, nigger. <clears throat> Least why they ain't gonna die like you gonna die, like a slave. I ain't given no lifetime of misery and sweat to this peck of wood. I'd rather die than be a slave. You peck of wood, that's right. You peck of wood was oppressed in your own land. We was free. And you brought us here. In chains. But now we here. And you just better know. This is just as much our land as it is yours. And after you hang me, kiss my ass. Yeah, that actually was ad-libbed by G2 Kambuka, the uh, the kiss my ass. He actually, while they were filming it, he threw that in, and Fleischer liked it so much, he asked him to do it again for multiple takes, and of course it ended up in the film. But the kiss my ass was ad-libbed by G2 Kambuka. I remember the first time I saw the film, the audience burst into applause. Like, they loved it. I would have given anything to see this film with packed houses in the United States with, you know, possibly even African-American audiences. And I, it's just, you know, but every time I saw the film on a big screen with a lot of people in the theater, people really loved this movie, like just normal people paying their admission and going in to see the film, totally, totally getting into it. It's interesting. You talked about how the Susan George's character was having sex with her brother. And that's such a taboo for these white people, but yet they're actually forcing the black people into these incestuous situations because you mentioned the character Big Pearl earlier. If they end up making Mead have sex with Big Pearl and siring a sucker with her, and they find out before that happens that they're what, brother and sister, I think? It's they're related. And it's just like, oh, okay, it's okay to force these two black people to have sex together, but it's not good for the whites. So there's this crazy double standard that's going on and there's this fear that you know the the child will be damaged when it comes out and then you know james mace is just like see nothing to worry about no problem we're okay with breeding these slaves that close together it just really makes your stomach turn in the novel they talk about that but it has unhappy results for example one character sophie hammond maxwell's daughter she appears in drum but not in mandingo She's in the Mandingo Daughter. She is the child of Blanche and her brother. And because of the incest, she becomes, uh, you know, she's cross-eyed, obviously, because of the inbreeding. And there's a number of characters in the novel that are the uh, result of inbreeding who are mentally retarded or physically have physical abnormalities because of the inbreeding. So in the novel, that's discussed more, the, the dangers of the inbreeding. And that, again, goes back to uh, Kyle Onstrott's research. Again, he was a dog breeder. He would go and throughout the country and breed dogs, knew about how to breed dogs, and also studied, that was a, uh, something true, uh, in slavery there were uh, plantations that actually did breed slaves. 
and they were treated as if they were breeding dogs, you know, uh, comparing the different uh, uh, relationships, if they were brother and sister and things like that, studying the dangers or the benefits of breeding different types of uh, people, just like breeding different types of dogs. Yeah, and it's interesting too. You point out in the book uh, Mondo Mandingo that the white characters have these ailments. That we have the James Mason character with the rheumatism, we have the Perry King character with the the bad leg, and that they are the unhealthy ones as opposed to the the black people who are usually in very fine shape. And that was something that's also um, was true as the book and the movie talks about they would worship these physically perfect black specimens and they would raise them to be not only displayed at slate at auction, but to fight, you know, that was something that historically did happen is we also had, uh, uh, in the South, there was cockfighting and there was dog fighting. There was also slave fighting. That was a true, that was something true. That wasn't made up for the, for the novel. They really were slaves bred to fight to the death like that. So Quentin Tarantino got that right out of that, huh? You know, Tarantino drives me nuts because he has spoken favorably about Mandingo, but he always does it with this, you know, well, but of course it's really awful, you know, sort of uh, response. It's awful, but I love it. He, of course, rips it off left, right, and center and pays homage to it all he likes. But um, it's funny that you mentioned the character of Sophie as well, because I have to admit, Sophie is a character in the film sequel, Drum, that I absolutely love because in the sequel, Drum, Sophie, the, the Hammond's daughter, is played by the wonderful Cheryl Rainbow Smith from the great Lamora film. It's amazing. Her performance, she is totally unhinged in Drum. And she's, you know, she's continually obsessed with sleeping with the African-American slaves on the plantation. And of course, at one point when she wants to get one of the slaves in trouble, there's that, again, astonishing dialogue where at one point she tells her father, she, she decides, okay, I'm going to tell a lie about one of the slaves. And she says, I think at one point, uh, well, Pappy, you know, when I open my eyes, I looked down, and there in my hands was Blaze's fang, you know? And it's, like, appalling. But it's she is such an amazing character in the sequel. And, uh, I, you know, the sequel, of course, is pure B-movie stuff. I don't, I don't really consider it to be as great a picture as Mandingo is. But, you know, Drum is certainly a film that has its entertaining points. Well, let's go ahead and take a break, and we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit more about Drum and some of the Mandingo exploitation type films after these brief messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number ten, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your ten free gifts? 
It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Badasses, Boobs, and Body Counts is a weekly podcast that discusses all things Grindhouse, Exploitation, Drive-In, and B-Movies. Your three hosts, Mike. We're, we're going to discuss the Renee Martinez-directed picture, the $6,000. What? Time. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's the name of the Super movie. Super Soul that's, Brother. That's the name. When you that's start the movie. Your DVD cover. When you start the movie, the first thing that that's comes what it up says. is the title, and it says $6,000. Mark. And I've been around a girl stroking a horse's dick somehow somewhere down the line i'm gonna use that clip against you (laughs) please do and listener favorite iris the deployment sock and i'm like deployment sock the fuck is a deployment sock he goes you know you know that sock that you just use oh my god you guys are so gross (laughs) so it happens for real people do come inside will make you question your political correctness while laughing at theirs episodes drop sunday and can be found by searching for bb and bc podcast via itunes lipson stitcher google play music and everywhere else you can download quality podcasts from you can also listen to episodes directly from the show's website at bbnbcpodcast.com. One dark and stormy night in the mid-80s, Joe Bob Briggs, Harlan Ellison, and the ghost of El Santo pulled a train on Elvira while Siskel and Ebert sobbingly masturbated in the corner. From that union arose the greatest movie critic and luchador that ever lived. But we're not going to talk about him. He's kind of a dick. Instead, we're going to talk about me, El Goro, the stuttering movie fan and host of the Talk Without Rhythm podcast. Every week on Talk Without Rhythm, I discuss two to three movies tangentially tied together by a theme. I cover action. And the most complete fighter in the world. Sci-fi. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Horror. Oh, no tears, please. It's a waste of good suffering. And the continuing adventures of James Spader, sexual deviant. You're not worried that I'm going to fuck you, are you? I'm not interested in that, and I'm waste. Now pull up your skirt. So check me out at TWORpodcast.blogspot.com, drunkenzombie.com, or subscribe on iTunes. Talk Without Rhythm, the only podcast that will not attract the world. Adios! Over 10 million people saw Mandingo, an epic motion picture based on one of the boldest, best-selling novels of all time. Now, there's a new film that penetrates even deeper into the decadence and depravity of the Old South. Mandingo lit the fuse. Drum is the explosion. Drum. Searing the screen with passion. Blazing with violence. Cause good, don't it? Exploding with excitement. Drum.
a story of love and lust. No white man can ever love you like I will. Savagery ah! and sensuality, brutality and revenge. They take our men and turn them into good and faithful dogs, happy to eat a white man's leaving. They tell us what wenches to pleasure like horses. They sell our children and we'd lick their hands. Drum. I know nothing of culture. I'm a slave trader. Starring Warren Oates, Pam Greer, Yafet Kuto, Brenda Sykes, John Colicos, Paula Kelly, Isela Vega, and Ken Norton as Drum. It's frightening. Fascinating. Spectacular. And shocking. Mandingo lit the fuse. Drum is the explosion. All right, we're back and we're talking about Mandingo, specifically its sequel, Drum, and some of the Mandingo-inspired films. So, Greg, you were saying that uh, Drum is very B-movie, and I have to agree. It definitely doesn't come off as nearly as inspired as Mandingo, but reading Paul's book, I mean, this seems like the definition of a troubled production, just to hear about the pre-making of drum what happened during it and then even what happened when they're trying to cut the picture together just sounds like it sounds like frankly paul that you could have written an entire book just about drum the novel drum was the sequel to mandingo the novel is huge the novel is credited to kyle onstar but it actually was written by lance horner who took over the falcon earth series uh, the novel structured like three different books. It covers three generations of male slaves. And it's not until it, the book doesn't become a sequel to Mandingo until the third book, when we come, come back to Falconhurst. So the novel, again, take it was, of course, difficult to take the Mandingo novel and turn it to a screenplay, but even more difficult to take the drum novel and turn it to a screenplay, because, again, it was uh, almost like it was a three-part epic. So Norman Wexler, who wrote the Mandingo screenplay, also wrote the drum screenplay. And he really just focused on that third book that took us back to Falconhurst. It's not without merit. It is a marvelously entertaining movie, but it really does feel out like a B picture. And I mean, sure enough, uh, it's, it's, it's directors, none other than, you know, sort of Corman protege Steve Carver taking the directorial reins. I mean, Carver actually directed one of one of my sort of favorite 70s gangster pictures, Capone with Ben Gazzara. You know, the film is actually it does feel very crisply directed. Certainly the action and all of the sex is really well handled. And the movie does have a sense of humor, especially you know, how can you go wrong with Warren Oates playing a much older Hammond Maxwell taking over the Perry King role? I mean, Warren Oates is absolutely astonishing in the picture. And Drum is a very, very entertaining movie. And I certainly am happy it exists. And it's funny because I remember missing Drum when it opened theatrically first run in Winnipeg, which it did. And I actually remember catching up with Drum on a um, 
on a double bill with Mandingo. And actually, we, we used to have all these amazing grind houses in Winnipeg. And it was in this one Winnipeg grind house. And they were doing this double bill. And it was, I, I never forget this. The I think they used to, they had these like little flyers. And I think they put in a little ad in the newspapers uh, where they, they advertised this double bill. Uh, it, it said, and now the bear roots. Of course, referring to the the famous miniseries Roots, which actually Mandingo did in fact predate as a film, and um, and I remember this double bill, and you know, especially in this particular grind grindhouse, it was absolutely disgusting. The place just smelled of urine and all kinds of other well, shall we say, things that might have been expelled within the cinema. The place was, you know, full of toothless hookers giving blowjobs to old malcontent old veterans in the theater and stuff like that. It was like absolutely disgusting, this theater. And that seemed to me to be the perfect first place to see drum. It reminded me of like, the second night of a multi-night miniseries, the way that we join the story almost already in action. And that, I mean, I, I kind of know the reason for it now after reading Mondo Mandingo, but that whole idea of like, here's this scene that happened 20 years ago, and then here's more of the movie and, you know, 20 years later, and then that, that crazy voiceover at the beginning, it just, it's like, what, what, what the fuck am I watching? It just drops me into this thing. And now we're back with Hammond Maxwell. And I'm like, how, how, how did I even get here? This is just absolutely bizarre. Drum was, again, was supposed to be an epic. You know, we talked that, uh, the original cut of, uh, Mandingo was four hours long and Richard Fleischer wanted to run about two hours, 45 minutes or three hours. It had to be cut down. Whereas drum was even more cut down. The original director of drum was Burt Kennedy, who was a famous uh, screenwriter and director. He had directed movies like um, Return of the Magnificent Seven, Support Your Local Sheriff. He was the original director and the film was supposed to this big, long first part that took place 20 years earlier well there was a big problem nobody really knows what exactly happened but Burt kennedy was fired uh they didn't really finish shooting that uh stuff for the first part of the movie and really just uh script this uh stripped the story down and steve Carver took over the directing from Burt kennedy and it's drums kind of a strange movie because it is a sequel to mandingo it takes place 20 years later on the same plantation uh, Warren Oates is playing the Perry King character, but he's playing completely different. You know, for one thing, he doesn't have a limp. For another thing, he doesn't have an aversion to having sex with white women because he has sex with, uh, willingly has sex with all these prostitutes all through the film. And then we have Ken Norton playing a different part. A lot of people who aren't familiar with the film think that Ken Norton plays his son, plays Mead's son, but that's not correct. He's playing a totally different character. And then we have Sophie, Hammond Maxwell's daughter and she disappears out of nowhere because she's supposed to be Blanche's daughter but of course, well, if we just watch Mandingo and Blanche didn't have a daughter whereas in the novel, the Sophie character was the offspring of Blanche and her brother so when you're watching drama, the sequel to Mandingo is very strange, you don't know how the hell it, it fits into it and like Mike said, drama was a trouble production, you know, got chalked on a lot and the whole first act of the movie was cut down to like a 
prologue at the beginning with the narrator. Like Mike said, it looks like you're watching part two of a miniseries. Yeah, you were talking in the book that there's like John Vernon was in the movie, Roger Mosley returned, but not in voice only, that he actually was a character, that there are all these actors who were originally in there and then they're just left on the cutting room floor. All those lost scenes, um, again, have been destroyed, lost for good. And yet there's a whole bunch of uh, lobby cards. I have a lot of pictures of my books of deleted scenes. We see John Vernon play the slave driver. Roger E. Mosley, he plays Ken Mead's father, but his part was completely cut out. There's all kinds of stuff in that movie that was cut out. And as we, uh, as I said earlier, the original Mandingo got an R rating uh, without having to cut hardly anything out of it except for one violent shot. Whereas Drum, when Mandingo came out, it got a lot of flack. You know, a lot of people said, oh, this should have been rated X. The MPA the ratings board shouldn't have given that an R rating. So when Drum came out, the rating board, they wanted to say, well, well, let's correct the mistakes you make a Mandingo. So they made the makers of Drum cut a lot of stuff out. So a great deal of violence was cut out of Drum. And again, stuff that's completely lost. And really for this one, there's the War Notes character, who is fantastic. And I love War Notes and anything. So I really enjoy him. He's got this relationship going on with a black woman and a white woman as well. And and all this stuff happening. But for me, the heart of the movie for this one is this relationship between Yafet Koto as Blaze and then Ken Norton as Drum. And their tension between each other and kind of Drum is looking out for Blaze, but Blaze doesn't necessarily understand that. And then there's the tension that goes on there. And then there's this it eventually culminates in this rebellion at the end. And it's kind of nice because they they have a throwaway line in the first one about Nat Turner, and this kind of smacks of Nat Turner to me in the second movie. Though, at the end, when this revolution takes place, it almost reminded me of like a zombie film. The way that the whites are holed up inside of the house, and the blacks are breaking through the, the windows and the doors, and they're coming at them. And it just feels like, it seems like I've seen this before in Night of the Living Dead or something. It's pretty rousing anyway. It's like pure B-movie rousing action. And I remember when I first saw it, it felt like Night of the Living Dead. It, I agree with you, Mike. It's like It was the first thing that hit me when I was watching drums. Like, what is going on here? But it, it is a very entertaining movie. And a lot of it, for me, does come from Warren Oates, who is so irascible in the film and so vulgar and delighted with being vulgar in the film, too. I mean, Warren Oates must have had a heck of a time playing that role and having one heck of a good time. I think Mandingo, the movie, is an absolute masterpiece, one of the best movies made in the 1970s. Drum is not a masterpiece, but I, and it's, not, it's not totally uh, without merit. Of course, the early stuff is very campy. Unlike Mandingo, which was played 100% straight, Drum is played very much like a comedy, very cartoonish, very body. But yet when we do come to that rebellion at the end, it is very exciting. And Drum is not a badly made movie. Again, it was, uh, you know, lots of fantastic people worked on it. The legendary cinematographer, Lucian Ballard, who shot The Wild Bunch and many other movies. The photography is really good. The effects are really good. Um, again, the costumes, everything. It's a really, it's not a low budget film at all. It's a big budget movie. It's just that because of the problems, it did come together. But that the ending really does. You know, it's a very exciting uh, action climax. And it's not in a cartoonish way. It's a very exciting, suspenseful scene. 
And we do have, it's not as serious, of course, as the first one, but there is some, almost like an eeriness to it at the end. The last part where it's almost like uh, Warren Oates at the end says, I don't understand these blacks. It's almost like they can think. And then, so we almost have like a, an epiphany at the end of the film, you know, the, the final part does become a little bit more serious, very suspenseful, almost a little bit more thought provoking than the first part of the film. Well, yeah, he even talks about how drum, because he is a mulatto that he's half human, which is just really striking that they consider the, somebody that has white blood to be human. And at this period of time, some people considered black people to be less than human. They thought that they were somewhere on the evolutionary ladder between animals and people. And so it was okay to, you couldn't say dehumanize people because they weren't people and they weren't humans to some of these pro-slavery people. And it's just amazing to think to even try to get your head around that. And that's why it was so taboo, the whole idea of having sex between a white person and a black person, because it was just this, like you're dipping into, it's, it was akin to bestiality. And it, it that's one of the things that I like about drum that is almost there even more than Mandingo. And there's even a, a speech that's very similar that Rainbow Smith gives that is almost verbatim from what uh, Suzanne George said in the first movie, where it's this whole power trip of, you know, if you uh, don't have sex with me, I'll cry rape, and then they'll end up castrating you. And there's a line about, like, perhaps he'll kill Blaze, or even worse, castrate him. And it's like, castration is worse than death to these people, which it can kind of be understandable. But it's this whole, uh, again, it's a great place to talk about this idea of the threat that black male sexuality has, you know, we're living in a world right now where one of the insults that gets bandied about like crazy on the internet is cuck, which is short for cuckold. And when you go out and you start looking up cuckold pornography, it is 90% of the time it is a black man having sex with a white man's wife. And it's just this whole like insult, you know, the, the greatest insult to a white man apparently is that you allow or that a black man comes into your house and has sex with your wife. And it's just like that becomes like the greatest insult to these a-holes on the alt-right is that you you're you're inviting a black man to have sex with the with your wife or you're allowing a black man to have sex with your wife and i almost think that that's kind of like you know what uh what they think obama was doing was that he was coming in and he was having sex with the country you know he was fucking the country up and it's just like it's amazing that that is such a, a powerful idea today that cuck is this this word that gets thrown about in 2018 it's not just a, a sexual insult, but it's also a racial insult as well, but just because of the predominant roles that go into this cuckolding fantasy and scenario. And that, to me, really comes out in drum as far as this idea of the, the, the power of the, the black men's sexuality and just that it needs to be controlled and that they, they really do need to castrate these black guys before they start having sex with the white women. And that's something that actually did happen. Um, Kyle Onstott did actually 
speak to a former slave who had been castrated. This is like when Kyle Onstall was in a was a teenager. You know, he didn't write his Mandingo book till he was in his sixties. But while he was a teenager, he actually met an ex-slave who had been castrated, and he had met an ex-slave who was uh, used to breed. He was a quote-unquote stud whose job on the plantation was to impregnate other women. So that really did happen. You know, the slaves were castrated, you know, on the plantations, the rebellious slaves. A lot of that, too, comes out in Audio Zio Tom. And I I just briefly, I don't want to get totally into this because we could be here all night. And I know that we're all super interested in what's going to happen on the Oscars tonight, right? But briefly, talking about Mandingo exploitation and... I can't necessarily say that Adio uh, Zio Tom, Farewell Uncle Tom, Goodbye Uncle Tom, goes by many names, that that was a Mandingo exploitation movie because it was actually predated the Mandingo films, obviously postdated the Mandingo book, which came out in 1957. But there were several films that came out after Mandingo. I'm thinking specifically of Mandinka or Mandinga, uh, and I think you mentioned what an Emmanuel film, and uh, there are a couple other movies that came out in the wake of this. But uh, Adio Zio Tom actually came out in '71, and I want to thank you for letting me know about this film because I was unfamiliar. I I have to admit that I don't watch a lot of quote unquote Mondo movies, and this one was such a delight. I mean, it's it's a horrible movie in a lot of ways, but it was such a delight in the way that it was made. And my God, I love the soundtrack for this thing. I had actually heard about that movie because I was way too young to have seen it or even heard about it. It never played where I was living. But there was a collection of Pauline Kale, the famous critic. I read a collection of her reviews and she talked about it. That's how I had first heard about it back in the 70s. And I always wanted to see it. And it wasn't until it came out on DVD that I finally got to see it. But it actually, that actually started as an adaptation of Mandingo. The novel Mandingo wasn't only a hit in the United States, but it was translated all over the world, including Italy. You know, it was a very popular novel over in Italy. In fact, Dino De Laurentiis, who produced the Mandingo movie, while he was still over in England, I'm sorry, while he was still over in Italy, him and another producer had first bought the rights and were trying to make it over in Italy. And that's what Mandingo was. The two guys, Giacopetti and Prosperi, who made Mondo Kanye, they wanted to make an adaptation of Mandingo. Of course, they couldn't afford the rights. So they said, why don't we make Mandingo as a documentary? Uh, Goodbye, Uncle Tom is certainly uh, very much inspired by the Mandingo novel, although, as you said, it predated the film. Yeah, I was just going to say, it would have been actually wonderful to see that film in a movie theater at the time, too. And it was something like, like you say, that I, I discovered myself and so well hearing about it through the Kale review and or the piece when she mentioned it. And, and yet years later, when that amazing box set did come out with all of their pictures including Mondo Kane and 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 that it was such a revelation watching that film because I agree with you Mike it by the way it is kind of awful but boy is it entertaining yeah I love that roving camera and the way that they'll go from 
late 60s, early 70s America back into 1860s, 1850s America. And just the, and of course, everyone's speaking Italian, at least in the version that I watched. So it's got this great, you know, disconnect of the language and everything. But to have this documentary crew visiting 1850s America and the way that these uh, Southerners, quote-unquote, are like, oh, I just have a few minutes to talk to you, and come on in, and I'll show you what's going on here, and hearing the slaves, like, I clean, and I clean, and I clean all day, and I st- it's still never good enough, and these amazing shots of, like, the... It's absolutely insane. It's... Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's completely bonkers, that film, and, 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 and maybe, you know, maybe... I don't know, maybe we should be revisiting the film, reevaluating the film the way we might reevaluate surrealism or Louis Bunuel or something like that, because it really is completely nuts. Well, there's one shot that looked like it was right out of a Hodorowski film with the uh, the the dwarf um, slave master, the black uh, slave master is running around and singing and dancing and stuff. I was just like, wow, he looks like he just escaped from the the city that El Topo was taking care of. There's a lot of stuff in that movie that's from the Mandingo novel that was not used in uh, the Mandingo film. So it's almost it's very much like a unofficial film adaptation of Mandingo, for example. And he's talking about all kinds of stuff. He's talking about uh, there's a slave who has three testicles. And that's something that's in Mandingo. And that was the truth, where there would be slaves who were had some type of strange physical abnormality and they would be more valuable because of that. Are there any Mandingo exploitation films that came out after Mandingo that you recommend or that you find enjoyment in? There's a, a version of Uncle Tom's Cabin. It was first made in 1965. It was this shot in 70 millimeter. It was a huge, uh, big budgeted movie made over in Europe. And that version um, did play American theaters and it was a huge hit in American theaters, especially in the American South. And then in 1977, after Roots came out on television, after Mandingo came out, Al Adamson a- added some newly shot footage to it to make it more shocking. The original version I recommend, it's a really uh, fascinating, elaborate, uh, epic movie. And then the altered version, um, I wouldn't recommend it. It's not good, but it's certainly interesting how they... Again, it's like a Mandingo ripoff. They tried to make more a more um, exploitative version of Mandingo and splice into this older movie. So I would kind of recommend, just for its historical value, that 1977 uh, reboot of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uh, there's Roots, which of course uh, was supposedly based on a real uh, a nonfiction book, but of course that book is actually nothing more than a Mandingo ripoff. And Roots is nothing more than a Mandingo, um, the miniseries is, is really nothing more than a Mandingo um, ripoff. But in terms of the other ones, uh, Mandinga is terrible. It's an Italian version of um, Mandingo made after the fact. And then there's also Emmanuel Black and White. Mandinga and Emmanuel Black and White were shot back to back. They're men, they're like, uh, Spaghetti Mandingos. I wouldn't recommend either one of them. They're pretty. They're pretty poor. And then there's another one, a Mexican ripoff called Black Fire from 1978. Very obscure. Um, again, I wouldn't recommend those as entertainment. They're just recommended as what's the word? 
curiosities. All right, guys, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Okay, it's the camera on. And action. He's America's most infamous filmmaker. Here I am in the island paradise, Cuba. Totally arrogant. I love America. That's why it needs to be destroyed. And completely clueless. We're the biggest slave owner in the state. Don't you worry, Master Malone. Huh? We got them bacon stains out of the upholstery. Oh. This time, he's finally gone too far. We're going to abolish July 4th. We're not shaving till they bring all the troops home. Thank you, boys. They're women. And it will come back to haunt him. Don't hurt me. I've always stood up for gay rights. I'm the angel of freaking death, you turd head. Now, three American spirits... I am General George S. Patton. That will explain a slapping. ...are determined to knock some sense into him. Hey, you're not a spirit. I know. I just enjoy slapping you. And will teach him the true meaning of patriotism. This is the greatest country in the whole wide world. From David Zucker. Mohammed. The master of movie satire. I must use less names. Hussein. God's sake. Comes an outrageous new comedy. It is getting harder and harder to find suicide bombers. And all the really good ones are gone. With Kelsey Grammer, Dennis Hopper, Trace Atkins, Leslie Nielsen, David Allen Greer, Robert Dovey, James Woods, Rosie O'Connell, and John Voight. With Kevin Farley as Michael Malone in An American Carol. They can't see us. Right. This is going to be harder than I thought. In theaters soon. Turn up the camera! That's right. We'll be back next week with the discussion of the very right-wing fantasy and American Carol. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Greg and Paul. Greg, what has been keeping you busy in the Great White North these days? Well, it's interesting because, um, you know, of course, I was born and raised in Winnipeg and got my start in Winnipeg, uh, producing films here with Guy Madden and John Pays and with the Winnipeg Film Group. And, well, you know, I'm I'm back in Winnipeg again. Uh, I was asked to come back to Winnipeg and be the executive director of the Winnipeg Film Group. So I'm back in Winnipeg right now running the Winnipeg Film Group, the place that I got my start making movies. So it's kind of cool. It's a it's a whole new it's a whole new challenge for me and a lot of fun. I'm I'm here just discovering a whole new generation of of amazing filmmakers here in Winnipeg and I guess that's what I'm doing here I'm I'm going to I'm going to find a whole bunch of cool young filmmakers and put them on the international map fantastic and Paul what's the latest with you did you go see the new death wish film I did not uh I'm going to skip that one so I'm not, oh, not going oh. to be I'm sorry. Oh. I have to interject. I don't think you should skip it necessarily. I, I actually saw it yesterday and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I actually thought it was very proficiently directed. I really enjoyed Bruce Willis's performance and it was a thoroughly entertaining film. And um, of course, I never read reviews before I see movies, but you know what? I, I took a look at the Rotten Tomatoes. I think it's at 13% on Rotten Tomatoes. And quite frankly, when a film's got that low percentile on Rotten Tomatoes, something suggests often to me that, well, maybe there is something good in it. So after the fact, I discovered that. And you know what? I actually didn't mind the new version of it at all. I found it quite entertaining and quite well made. Okay. But 
All right. Yeah. So, um, let's see. Um, oh, I just want to, let me just reiterate, give another plug for my book that we've been talking about. It's called Mondo Mandingo, the Falconer's books and films. I spent uh, years researching it. It covers the creation of the Mandingo novel. It covers all the Falconer's novels and the publishing history has extensive articles on the making of the Mandingo film and the drum film. I interviewed the directors, a lot of the actors who worked on those films. So that book is Mondo Mandingo. You can find it on Amazon or any place where books are sold. Um, other stuff I've been working on recently, I've been doing a lot of commentary tracks out now from Signal One Entertainment is a new Blu-ray DVD of Damnation Alley, the 1977 science fiction movie. I did an extensive commentary track for that. That one's out now. And uh, I just recently recorded commentary tracks for Death Wish 4 and Death Wish 5 for a new Blu-ray double feature that's coming out from the Australian group Umbrella Entertainment that should be out in a few months. Double feature Blu-ray of... Oh, I'm just going to say, Paul, I cannot recommend Mondo Mandingo enough to people. I I think it's a phenomenal book. It's so beautifully written and, and so extensively researched and and it does shine a light upon an amazing both literary and cinematic phenomenon and and you know i'm i'm so delighted and happy that you actually wrote that book and 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 i really highly recommend it to 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 aficionados of film period thank you very much well, and that you read all of those Falconhurst books, that must have taken at least a year to do that. My God. Yeah, the difficult thing about it was um, it, t- it was a, it took it was a long time to find them. I couldn't just sit down and read them. It took me years to build my collection because they were, you know, a lot of them. Uh, of course, they were all out of print, and so it was very difficult to find all of them. And um, there was no order. You know, I didn't know what order they had come out. I didn't know what order the stories were. So it wasn't until I read all of them that I was able to put together a chronology of which order the stories take place. So yeah, that was one of the things that took so long was trying to find these books. And then of course they're huge books. So it takes a while to read them and uh, write about them. Of course I, I, yeah, I was a real sick puppy as a kid though. And I was lucky enough to read them as a kid and I still have all of them. Oh, good. Oh, see, had I introduced you guys before, you would have been all set if if Greg would have loaned you his book. <laughs> yeah, really, right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> little, too little, too late. Sorry. And they've actually, it's actually gotten harder. While I was writing the book, it was hard to find those, but now um, they're even harder to find because some people have tried to get in touch with me and try to put together a collection, but it's uh, very difficult to find them. I was lucky. I have an actual first edition hardback of Mandingo, and it's actually signed by Kyle Onstott. So I was very lucky to, yeah, I was very lucky to, uh, uh, to find that. That's one of my prized possessions. Well, thank you guys for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.